Welcome. Today is January 11th, 2024, and this is Catholic Family News Weekly News Roundup. I'm Brian McCall. I'm happy to be joined by CFN's production manager, Murray Rundis. Welcome. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, great. It's very freezing here in Kansas, <laughs> but it's different from the, the Phoenix the, uh, weather that I was used to, but uh, it's good to be back. Yeah. Global warming, I'm sure. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we have uh, a big lineup of stories today. A lot of interesting um, scandals broke, mm. uh, sadly, this week. But I think they're scandals that give us some insight. Um, and that's what we're going to try yeah. to do. You've probably heard about these stories, but I think they give us some insight that you may not have heard at some other news reporting. So first, we have uh, this book that was discovered and released uh, by the author of uh, Fiducia Supplicans, uh, the kissing cardinal. And uh, it really does, I think, explain a lot. This is not, uh, this is something he's been working on for a long time. And I think that's what we're going to discuss uh, in in this uh, shocking book that was discovered. Uh, then we're going to look at, again, I think a related story, uh, another push for married priests. We saw this at the Amazon Synod. There was a real push for it. In, in classic Francis fashion, it was sort of put forward, gauge reaction. Benedict uh, the 16th and Cardinal Sarah did a big pushback and they sort of backed off. But I think there's some signs that it's going to be coming up on the agenda again. Um, then we're going to look at the secret Epstein documents. There were some documents released by uh, court this over the last few weeks. Uh, give you our take on what we think is going on uh, with those unsealed court documents. And then we're going to talk about a topic we haven't discussed in a, quite a long time, and that is the immigration crisis. Uh, again, there, there's there's some various stories that are collected to that, but I think it's important to get a Catholic perspective, particularly because this is a, a big issue on which the USCCB particularly, I think, is way off of Catholic base. Um, I mean, it's funny, they're, they're certainly closer to Catholic positions on abortion um, than some bishops' conferences. They at least have somewhat held the line there, but they are completely con confused on the issue of immigration. So we're going to give you a little bit more of a Catholic uh, perspective uh, in light of some stories related to the crisis there. But before we get into that, uh, first, let you know some really, we released a lot of videos this week. Uh, we interviewed Alec Torres, who's an author, was on previously, but told his conversion story. It was really an inspiring story. One of those stories that notwithstanding the crisis in the church, God can reach through it and uh, reach people's hearts and give, grant them the, the actual grace uh, to come to the church. So it really was an inspiring story. Listen to that. And uh, something I'm really just thrilled that we were able to do. Uh, we were able to get together with Dr. David Allen White, who is a legend of the traditionalist movement. Uh, if you haven't heard of him, you've got to watch this video. If you've heard of him, you've got to watch it. Uh, he talks about everything from his own conversion to his time teaching at the Naval Academy uh, to a really fascinating discussion about uh, Shakespeare. And I'll just tempt you a little bit. If you have never thought of this, Shakespeare's plays reflect the mysteries of the rosary. And I'll give you a hint. There's no luminous mysteries in them. Uh, but <laughs> please go to our channel. Uh, Murray it's, was able to get him. He's he's not in the greatest of health. He's uh, of a generation where there may not be many more opportunities for an interview uh, with him. Uh, this may be you know, one of the last. And there's some just phenomenal content there. But meanwhile, we are uh, in uh, the the season of Epiphany. And uh, Murray, you want to tell us about the saint who is commemorated today uh, when we're still in this uh, octave of Epiphany? 
Yeah, so you, you'll often not see him on uh, calendars because he's he's a, a saint that's well-known in the eastern side of the church, but not so much in the western, which is a Theodosius the, the Chinobiarch. And that last uh, that last title is talking about the, the Chinobic, uh, Ch Chinobitic way, which is a sort of monastic uh, style of uh, communal living. He's well-known in the um, the eastern church, as I mentioned, especially within the, the Maronite commun communities. So uh, he's definitely a saint to, to ask for. For, to, for his prayers, he was um, a contemporary of uh, the Stylite movement, you know, where they you have these great saints standing, had the special grace to be standing on top of these pillars for long periods of time, an example to the faith, to uh, asceticism um, and more, which we need more of. We need more of an example of that sort of ascetic life, especially, you know, we're going to be talking about these scandals today. Uh, the spiritual life is defined by asceticism. Um, uh, whether you're in the West, whether you're in the East, it's very important. And avoiding this sort of sensualized view of the spiritual life is um, is really essential. Uh, there's other uh, feast days uh, to be spoken about. We we just um, passed the the bap or here in this in this time, we have the baptism of our Lord. I mentioned last show about how theophany is celebrated in the, yes. the Eastern Church, the revelation of God through the baptism, the, the uh, through the baptism of our Lord. In the Western Church, we have a, a separate feast day for yes. that, and it's, uh, it's. I would recommend everybody go take a look at the the readings for that day. I think it, it really is um a, a great thing to reflect on. So yeah, it, it's interesting coming from that Eastern tradition. There's a mm -hmm. little bit of an echo it in the Roman breviary for the Epiphany, mm -hmm. uh, because again, it, there's, there's there was a strong association in the East, as you say, between the coming of the Magi, the uh, baptism of our Lord, the Theophany mm -hmm. there, and the wedding feast at Cana. Uh, in the West, it was always traditionally held that these three events occurred on the same date, not, not obviously mm -hmm. the same year, but the same date. And if you look at the breviary for January 6th, there's references in the office. But it, I, I find it interesting in the West, we decided they decided to spread it out rather than sort yeah. of emphasizing all of it. So on the January 6th, we get the Magi we get the, the 13th, the octave of that, the baptism of our Lord, where we can just focus mm -hmm. on that. And then the next Sunday, uh, the second Sunday after the Epiphany, we get the wedding feast at, at Cana, all three of which are manifestations uh, of our Lord and all of which, uh, you know, he in a different way presents himself. So mm -hmm. uh, you're right. It's really, it's, it's a, a beautiful thing to, to uh, contemplate. Um, but we also have on Sunday, a feast of St. Hilaire de Poitiers. Uh, mm -hmm. He was a Celt uh, in, uh, who operated in, uh, was a bishop in France, what we call France today. But he, he was at the time of St. Athanasius and really was a second St. Athanasius. A lot of people know St. Athanasius, Arianism, mm -hmm. although there were not many bishops, there were others. And St. Hilaire was... Um, one of those uh, who fought Arianism in the West, uh, particularly in Europe, Athanasius was sort of North Africa in the East primarily, but uh, he, he fought the Arians there. And I will just note, uh, it Sunday is our one of our sons' uh, 21st birthday, and we developed a tradition by the time of our third son. Uh, their third name usually is uh, the name of the feast of the the name of the saint whose feast they were mm -hmm. born on. So I remember we met a really great priest in England who said, why do you Americans just have one or two names? I mean, there's a great chance <laughs> to have multiple uh, saints watch over your children. So we really went to a minimum of four after that. And always <laughs> that, that one is uh, 
the the day they were born. So he is uh, Saint uh, Hilaire because he was born on the the 14th. We debated whether to go with Hillary or Hilaire. Um, I have to admit, we had a French, uh, young French girl who was staying with us in London, and she's like, oh, but this is a French saint. You must have the French name. And that <laughs> persuaded me as well as I didn't really want to think of Hillary Clinton, whatever we mentioned. Right, yep. So, <laughs> but he's a, he's a wonderful saint to pray for in, uh, in our mm -hmm. times. Uh, before we get to that first story, reminder of our affiliate program with Sophia Institute Press. Uh, you can support CFN and get 15% off their catalog by going to our affiliate link here. It's a bit of a mouthful, uh, but it will be in the uh, description. And there's a QR code you could uh, hold your phone up to right now and get it. Uh, get 15% off by using the CFN uh, affiliate link there. Great. So we do have a very uh, delicate story to discuss uh, mm -hmm. next, but I think it's very informative. Uh, we already knew about the Kissing Cardinal, his book, Heal Me With Your Mouth, that uh, it was is, is pretty scandalous. I, w I don't think it's actually outright pornographic. It's just it's I would say creepy. Uh, it's not the kind of book you'd expect a priest to write, uh, but it, it, it it's got some very, I think, uh, edgy passages. But it doesn't, I think, cross the line. Well, a group of uh, people in Argentina have uh, unveiled through the Internet. Uh, again, nothing's uh, you can't hide much these days with the Internet. Another book that he published also in the late 1990s, uh, Cardinal Fernandez. Uh, and this one definitely crosses the line. And I would recommend not reading the excerpts that are online. Um, there's there's a practice in Catholic seminaries where, you know, there are certain books that if you're conducting study or having to refute something, you have to actually look at them. Uh, they're dangerous books. So they put them in an area of the library colloquially known as hell. Uh, <laughs> it's sort of closed off. You need a key to get in. You have to get permission of the rector to go in. And again, you have to show a good reason. Well, I need to read this so we can warn people about certain things or I can refute Martin Luther. Uh, so I think uh, this book belongs in hell, um, definitely, because it is uh, absolutely uh, pornographic, scandalous, but pornographic at uh, uh, various points. So we're going to tell you, you don't need to read it and really don't. I, I think... Uh, the imagination is a really dangerous thing. Once you get sort of things in your mind, it, that's why the saints always warned, be careful about what you read and see. This is really uh, got pornography in it. Uh, here is the book, um, La Passion Mystica, Espiritualidad et Sensualidad. Um, first of all, from the title, you're getting a sense this is weird. Spirituality and Sensuality. That's the subtitle. Okay, why is the priest writing about that? Now, secondly, mm -hmm. uh, this is really about Christian mysticism, one would think. And he's got pagan gods. Uh, he's got what we believe is, I think, is Apollo and Daphne uh, in a very uh, uh, revealing pose, to say the least. Uh, fortunately, there's a little scrap of uh, uh, cloth there. Uh, but definitely... Not the kind of picture I would expect to find on a spiritual reading uh, material. Mm -hmm. And now it is true that um, St. Paul uses marriage as a uh, compar point of comparison uh, to inspire us in our marriages to be Christ-like. 
right? So he says to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The image of the marriage of the bride and the bridegroom is a, a metaphor for the love of Christ for his church. But this is classic modernism. They take something which is very beautiful like that, that metaphor to show that love to sacrifice yourself for the other, and they want to basically turn it into Playboy magazine. They want to trivialize it. And for them, I think the real problem of this is an era of Vatican II. The primary end of marriage throughout all of church history is the procreation and rearing of children. The secondary end is the mutual love and support of the spouses, uh, which is on multiple levels, spiritual, psychological, also physical in the gift that God gives of the marital act to build that bond. But that's secondary. What did Vatican II do? It inverted that and made that the end of marriage. And that's really the origin of all of these heresies around the nature of marriage, because if the uh, experience of the God-created pleasure in the marital act is the end of marriage, the point of marriage, the most important thing, then everything revolves around it. And that's how you justify contraception, quote, irregular unions, their classic mm-hmm. way of talking about it, and for all perversion. Because the uh, physical act, the marital act, is put as the end, the purpose of marriage, rather than an element of it that helps the married couple towards their primary end. Um, That, I think, is exactly what this book does. It takes that thinking of Vatican II and uh, runs down with it. Uh, There's a lot of problems with the book. Again, we're not going to read it. uh, Passage is out. There is a blasphemous passage in one chapter uh, basically describing a, a physical encounter between a young girl and our Lord, which involves uh, really blasphemous content. It's on the level, although I didn't see the movie, uh, of I think The Last Temptation of Christ. Is, yeah. yeah. And uh, that one, I didn't even read that chapter. I read a description of it because it was so sounded so blasphemous. Uh, otherwise, there are these detailed descriptions of the marital act and the perspectives of it of men and women. And my only first comments I'll make on it is, What's really weird about it is they're written by someone, uh, it would appear, who has experienced these things. I mean, that's what I took away from it, that, Mm -hmm. you know, a level of detail. It's like, how do you, you're a priest, how do you know this, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, and, and, you know, that's sort of troubling in, in a way. But what's even more troubling is the church has always taken that image of the veil. Right? The veil, everything which is sacred is veiled, the chalice, the tabernacle. And the marital act is something which should be treated veiled. And that's why the church has always developed ways of speaking about it, discretion, opposed this kind of education in school, because it's the type of topic which needs to be discussed with discretion uh, and with respect for uh, this great mystery of procreation, where God allows two human beings to participate in the creation of a new human being, that it needs to be treated with the utmost respect. One of the major attacks of the modern world on the church has been to eliminate that, right? If you think about the entire movement in the entertainment industry is to trivialize the marital act and make it just about some animalistic function of nature and to talk about it in the most explicit terms, the intention of that is to remove the veil and 
that is, I will just tell you exactly what are in these chapters of the book that are are circulating. There is also sanctioning of homosexuality, basically a part where Cardinal Van Priest says, you know, well, you know, people do things that are maybe not the greatest, but, you know, God will forgive them and it's okay, more or less. So I found that there's definitely a passage where he presents that attitude of this isn't the ideal homosexual misuse of the of a simulation of the marital act uh and just sort of well you know they'll still be homosexual it's okay you you don't lose god's grace um so that for me what i think is the most revealing about this book not the salaciousness of it but the whole work of this cardinal and remember he is believed to be the ghost writer of amoris Letizia. Uh, he clearly is the writer of uh, 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 the now infamous document that he that came out as the Christmas gift, blessing same-sex blessings. Uh, but this has been a long project for him. He was clearly obsessed. I think is not a, an overstated uh, with the marital act and with perversions of it. He was writing about it in a pornographic way uh, 30 years ago, and I think he hasn't changed. Now he comes out. Obviously, the scandal broke this week, and he came, oh, I was a long time ago. I was young. Uh, I don't want to reprint it. Well, you know, he doesn't He doesn't say, I, he says, I wouldn't write it today. <laughs> he doesn't say, I repudiate it. He just says, I wouldn't write it today. And ironically, you don't have to, your eminence, because you wrote it in your doctrine, <laughs> in your declaration, because basically your obsession with the marital act continues and that you know that that you just want more and more of it uh and in any form of perversion and it to me you could say i wouldn't write it today maybe because i'm getting in trouble but clearly not a repudiation of it now a lot of people made a big deal about this i actually think again like we always say here francis is not on a different road than the post-conciliar popes. He's just going further down the same road. Um, as I already said, I think the origin of this whole error is the, the line in Vatican II, which destroyed the hierarchy of ends of marriage. But then there is also the theology of the body of John Paul II. Now, John Paul II, again, lifted this veil and talked about, certainly, and I, I want to be clear, John Paul II was not pornographic, but talked about in a way that trivialized and and uh overemphasized the sort of the desire for the marital act and those sort of aspects on the physical side and popularized it his devotees went even further with it i think his greatest follower of this christopher west did cross the line into the pornographic in his material about the theology of the body but i just want to read a quote from you from christopher west about these series of homilies given by John Paul II around the time that Tucho, Cardinal Fernandez, is writing his books. Mm -hmm. I remember holding those four little books in my hands. Uh, Pauline originally published The Theology of the Body in four volumes and saying to myself, this is Christopher West, this is a revolution for the church and the world, yet it seems nobody knows about it. Nobody is talking about it. And he then took on to himself to promote this. Now, again, there's we don't have time to talk about all the errors in the theology of the body, but I think the root cause is still this, a proper uh, understanding of the role of the marital act within the ends of marriage and the proper discretion that should be used in discussing these matters. John Paul II 
push the ball down the field. And clearly one of these young priests in Argentina who later become Cardinal got the memo and uh, took it even further. Yeah. It's in my view, I think just the blasphemous nature of the, the text makes this probably the, the greatest scandal that's come out of this pontificate because I, I don't buy the fact that nobody knew about this. Um, I, I, this work was cited in later work. So it's not as if he, um, uh, exterminated all first edition copies of this. No, this work was cited by uh, later works after it. Um, a few and by things, the way, I think, uh, if they didn't know about it, their whole process of vetting bishops and cardinals is pretty bad, right? Because right. yeah, this wouldn't have happened 60 years ago because this book would have been discovered and they would have said, well, then, sorry, you, somebody like this cannot mm -hmm. become the head of the doctrine of the faith. <laughs> right. And and this work was also listed on his list of works as well. So I, I don't <laughs> buy that at all. Um, but so outside of the blasphemous nature of this, I, I want to really um, – focus on what I think is the root problem here, which is that this shows the problem with fiducia supplicans. Um, if you, I, I would suggest, like Brian said, do not read these, these, this work, but it's very obvious what he believes because it's, um, it's very explicit in what it says that these acts, even if they take place in a moral circumstances, like a homosexual union or, uh, or a union outside of marriage, if you can even call it a union, um, those acts in, in in themselves, he says, can be a act of worship to God. Yeah. What does that show us? It shows us that when the the cardinal is saying, "Well, you can bless certain good aspects of a uh, a couple's relationship," I I think it naturally follows then that those those acts committed outside of a marriage, which is between one man and one woman, are being blessed. And that that's so scandalous. That's so uh, against the the Catholic teaching on sexuality and morality that it just has to be condemned. I I actually think it hits the the level of heresy at that point. If you're saying that something like these the act of sodomy can be blessed, it's un it's unbelievable. It, it, it's it's shocking that such a man can become cardinal. Uh, well, I, I well, think and you're right on top of that, there's a part where he talks about basically pornography and how, hey, you know, men and women, they, they like pornography. I mean, he doesn't say like pornography is horrible. He talks mm -hmm. about it in a very positive light. Right. And it's it shows he has a skewed, sick, yeah. frankly, yes. view of of morality and sexuality. I wanted to address something before we move on from this story that it needs to be addressed because something that irritated me so bad uh, so much was. Uh, calumny and detraction against this, a great saint, which was St. Teresa of Avila. Um, these, these people in their ways to try to defend anything from the current pontificate had the gall to say that, well, if you look at statues of St. Teresa of Avila or you look at her writings, it's the same thing. It absolutely is not. And I want to read a section from one of her works. Um, uh, I, I remember this being cited, and then I saw this on Twitter. It's um it's from her 177th letter. She says this. She's writing to a um uh to a correspondent, and she says, "As for the lascivious feelings that you tell me about, don't pay any attention to them. 
For although I have never experienced this, for God in his goodness has always delivered me from those passions, I think it must happen because the delight of the soul is so great that it arouses those natural feelings. They will die away with the help of God if you pay no attention to them. Other people have spoken to me about this. What is that saying? She's saying, look, if you get in the sick way that uh, Tuco tries to describe, well, union with God is like the experience of those acts, she's saying absolutely not. No, the, the spiritual life should be dry. That's the Carmelite way. Right. And you'll also see this with something like um, the Philokalia, if you read it in the Eastern writings. if you Any, any spiritual writer worth, worth his or her salt uh, spiritual writings of uh, spiritual exercises of Saint Ignatius, they will say if you get these sorts of feelings, it needs to be disregarded, and it shows a lack of spirituality on Cardinal Fernandez's part. It's a scandal to people's spirituality, and that's besides the the fact that it's a scandal to their morality. So I wanted to vindicate uh, Saint Teresa of Avila. Um, there and also make the point that this is harmful not only on the the moral uh, standpoint it's harmful on a spiritual standpoint as well and it needs to be thoroughly rejected uh people cannot defend such a work this uh cardinal fernandez needs to be expelled from any sort of vatican office i saw a tweet saying he wouldn't make it as any sort of youth minister in a normal parish so why should he be the head of doctrinal issues for catholics it's embarrassing he should be expelled well, and a reminder, also the head of the office, which has under it the area that investigates uh, priests for abuse. Right. <laughs> uh, Remember that. That's he's good. Again, he's not, I'm sure, directly involved in all the cases, but he is the ultimate one that oversees that. And this is the kind of guy that writes this stuff. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I agree with you. Now, again, a few comments. Yes, the Pacamama, you know, some people are arguing, saying, well, the Pacamama was more... Uh, again, I think you could argue since it's against the first commandment, obviously scandalous, but it was certainly not, I think, as shockingly scandalous as, no. as this is, as, as shocking as that is. I don't want to downplay that because it was incredibly shocking yeah. to see that, but, mm -hmm. um, good. You know, I, I take your point, those who were arguing uh, about that. Well, our second story, I actually think is related with the conciliar church's obsession with sex, which is basically, yeah. I think, uh, part of this problem here. And that's uh, a recent comments from another bishop on the topic of, quote, married priests. Yes. And this is a bishop, I forgive me for pronouncing his name uh, incorrectly, which I'm sure I will. It's Archbishop uh, Sheik Luna, I think it's, uh, I think that's how you pronounce it, of Malta. Uh, he's the adjunct secretary in the Vatican's doctrinal office. Again, this is one of Pope Francis's advisors. What did he say? Well, he said, I think it's time that the church reconsiders priestly celibacy. And the way he described it didn't just seem like new priests uh, should be not taking the vow of celibacy anymore. He almost implied that the priests now need to be uh, renouncing their vow of celibacy just so that we can um, uh, keep them around as priests. And his reasoning was very simplistic and uh, simple-minded, which was just, well, I know from experience which is, you know, okay. He's saying from experience, he knows that priests shouldn't be celibate. It's causing a, uh, us to leave, um, uh, causing priests to leave the priesthood. And I'll make, um, I want to make a few comments about this because I will say people need to be ready for this. I think this is something likely to occur. 
I think it is it is yeah. very likely that uh, we will see the especially if Pope Francis is around for another three or four years, or we get a new uh, Francis II, Francis II. I think this is something likely that we'll see uh, is the the abolition of priestly celibacy. I want to make sure that everybody's on the same page here, which is that this wouldn't be heresy, and we need to understand the the. Uh, the history of, of celibacy, or at least a brief history in order to understand that, which is that um, the church has always, even stemming back to St. Paul, prioritized celibacy uh, and said that that is the most perfect way. And you'll see even in writings that you see Protestants reference, such as uh, Tertullian, who really is not a, a credible source on this, even he is saying it's praiseworthy for uh, for people to be celibate. You see this ex very clearly stated in somebody like um, St. Basil, uh, St. Cyril. Uh, throughout the Church Fathers, you see a, a prioritization of celibacy. In the East, the Eastern part of the Church, they've taken a different route. And for them, they allow priests to be married. That's something that the Catholic Church has confirmed. They're, in the Eastern Church, they are allowed to. But even then, one cannot become a bishop and be celibate. Now, the Western Church has been very clear in saying and very successful in its implementation of uh, priestly celibacy. It allowed for the great Jesuit missionaries to convert half of the world. It allowed for um, uh, for priests to focus on their uh, parochial ministries rather than having to worry uh, about a family. And that's something that even is, if you read the, the 19th century debates on that, that's something even the old Catholics, the way they're called, the old Catholics, uh, they'll say, you see many writers there saying, yes, that, that's actually the way we, we, we should have uh, gone, which is keeping that, that old practice of priestly celibacy. Um, what we see now, and the reason why I think we've seen such scandalous things come out from uh, celibate priests is because something that's not talked about, which is that priests in the diocesan structure very rarely have a community life. Um, they're sometimes not even living in common. They have very few people to talk to. And so of it's, they have they have no person to be uh, held accountable to, and of course that's going to lead to bad places. But if you look at the traditional way of doing it, something that's still retained by the traditional orders like the Society of St. Pius X, priests having a community life with each other, being able to hold each other accountable, being able to live in common, uh, that's something that allows priestly celibacy to function and work. So what I would suggest to the Archbishop of Malta is that perhaps it's not this age-old custom that's and uh, discipline that's been going on since the time of our Lord, but perhaps it's this abuse that's re that has developed in not having a, um, a priest have proper community life. Perhaps it's uh, something we need to reflect on there rather than trying to throw everything out the window, throw the one of the, the highest things that the Western church has, something that we, one of the few things that we can still say to the East, look at our great ascetic practice of celibacy. And instead of throwing that out, perhaps we should hold it up as an even higher standard. I, absolutely. And that's why, as you mentioned, Archbishop Lefebvre, from the earliest days, and when there was a lot of need, I mean, there were, hard, there were hardly any mass centers, uh, he held the line from his missionary experience and said, priests don't live alone. And even if he had to have mission churches where they went, they always had to go to the mission for one or a couple yeah. of days and come back to a priory where they lived with at least three 
preferably more priests in community. Yeah. And again, he had, was a lot of people criticized him, but we need a mass here in, you know, far flung wherever. And he says, great, but you can't have a priest live there. I will not send my priests right. alone. And he really held that, that line because he saw, he knew from his time in Africa, you can leave and go out into the jungle, but you always have to come back, as you say, yeah. you're accountable. And again, I just want to remind people, this is not novel. John Paul II is the first pope who allowed Western Roman priests to marry um, yeah. when he made his ecumenical gesture to ordain ordinary, yeah. Anglican lay people who had been playing priest in the Anglican church. Uh, he would ordain them priests, even though they were married. And I'll share a little story just to me that summed up the whole practical reason why you can't, why this doesn't work well. Uh, so we were having dinner in our home in England with a traditional priest, celibate traditionalist priest. And one of these priests who uh, had a family uh, had, and his wife was there. He was a former Anglican, well, Episcopalian, I think, in his case. Um, mm. And his wife was with him. And he was having a really, the two priests were having a really in, important discussion on the traditional mass. The former Episcopalian priest admitted that Novus Ordo is, is really bad and that he doesn't want to say it. And he, every priest should only say the traditional mass. So the traditional priest said, well, then why don't you do that? And he said, well, I, I can't, I can't risk the consequences. He says, what do you mean? He said, well, they could take away my support of my wife. I have a wife to mm -hmm. support. So I can't really annoy the bishop where I am. And and, he just, and the priest just turned and said, and that's why priests shouldn't be married. <laughs> <laughs> End of discussion. Because it's one thing to say, and this is all even hard for diocesan priests right now. They say, it's only me. I, like, I'm going to put my livelihood uh and my being taken care of on the line, right? Father um, Walters, one of the priests and priests wears thy mass that tells their story. First thing they did when he wouldn't say the new mass is took away his health insurance and his pension and his salary. Um, it's one thing to say like, I'm going to be at risk. It's another to have a wife and children. And mm -hmm. if you have six, seven, eight, nine children, well, okay. You want to say the traditional mass? We're cutting off your money. Uh, that is humanly speaking, imprudent to put a, a priest in a position to have to deal with yeah and i'll mention one more thing because i know this is going to get brought up uh and the, <laughs> the anglican ordinary is something that is it kind of deserves its own discussion <laughs> so, there's a yeah. lot there's, it's kind of a, it's a rabbit hole there yeah. i know good ordinary priests but there are some there's some issues there and but that's a separate thing to those people that say well look the east does it therefore it's fine people have to remember these are this is two widely different customs and cultures. I know good Eastern priests personally who have uh, families, but they're the way they run parishes, the way the liturgy is thought of, it's a different way of viewing things. So we cannot, this is what the, this is one of the lies of the new mass is saying, well, look, the East does all these things. We're going to just put it in the West. No, it, we need to stand our ground on saying we've developed these practice for thousands of years in the West. We know what we're doing. This is, this is a part of our culture. Now we wouldn't, uh, if you always hear people decrying Latinizations in the East, 
I think we need to um, stick with our traditions in the West, especially since they did work. They converted half the well, world. So that's that's my word on to that. that the, yeah, the Eastern churches did not convert half the world. I mean, frankly, right. they're la and I'm overstating this slightly. I know. So I'll break some comments. Yeah. But I mean, their last great missionary push was Cyril and Methodius. Right? Mm. Um, yeah. Their last big missionary push was to the Slavs. And that was over a thousand years ago. So. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a long history to this. I think that's a, a great point that uh, that you make. But you're right. Maybe we'll do a little show just on the uh, the the ordinary because it is a really interesting. Uh, interesting. I know it came up with your interview with Charles Kloom, which is another did, yes. new piece of content yes. we have. Great video, uh, Charles. That uh, you talked a little bit about the ordinary. Well, so our third story, um, and we debated discussing this last week, but we both sort of wanted to see it percolate a little bit to decide what to say about it. Uh, the Epstein documents, which were revealed, well, and maybe we have some revelations. So what are we talking about? Jeffrey Epstein, another creepo. He and Tusha would probably get along pretty well, uh, it seems. Uh, this was this uh, wealthy guy who basically was involved in, as best we can tell, really shady, abusive activities, particularly focused on young girls. And he seemed to be running a trafficking, uh, participating in and running a trafficking international ring of young girls for the rich and powerful. He was arrested on these charges uh, and then died uh, in prison open another Pandora's box here. Listen to, to uh, Tucker Carlson uh, on this one when he tries to ask Donald Trump. Uh, and I will just say, I find it highly unlikely he died of natural causes. He died in, in very suspicious circumstances in a federal prison. Uh, in any event, he died. Uh, like I said, another top, another long story to talk about the, the, the odd circumstances. Uh, his uh, associate in crime, his henchman, Jelaine Maxwell, um, did go to trial and was convicted of running this uh, this ring, essentially, of uh, trafficking children, particularly girls, uh, and uh, is now serving 20 years in a federal uh, prison uh, for what uh, she did. So we know from the beginning of the uh, trial that was going to be against Epstein and then from, and here they are, I mean, they just look creepy. Sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Jelaine Maxwell's trial that this is true. I mean, this is what they did and they did it. They were doing this for the rich and powerful. Um, we also know because of a lawsuit filed by a Virginia Guffrey uh, against, among others, Jelaine Maxwell, but also Prince Andrew, another creeper. Um, and she filed a lawsuit. They had a lot connected with that lawsuit, a lot of legal documents and, and, and uh, depositions taken. And then it was settled for an undisclosed amount. Uh, and uh, all the court documents were, were sealed. Um, and what happened is the judge uh, in these sealed documents that are, again, lists, discovery requests, emails, interviews, depositions, which were lawyers asked questions under oath, uh, were all sealed, meaning to be kept private. Now, trials are public events. They are part of the public, the res publica. They are part of public record. So it's very odd for trial and litigation information to be, be sealed. And uh, eventually the judge said she would make them, that he would make them, uh, sorry, uh, 
available. And so in batches, they're being released. There was a flood of about a thousand documents. And then that was followed up by a smaller batch of documents. Uh, and really, I think a lot of people jumped to some conclusions. First of all, you know, they just rat looked for names. I think people did a bunch of word searches and a lot of names showed up, but you have to be really, really careful with that because this is just a data dump of information. And there are certainly some bad actors, I'm sure, in these names that are named as doing bad things, but there are also victims. There are people who just were, may have information about details or facts. Um, and so you really have to be careful. A lot of these stories with all these people are named in Epstein documents. You really have to read them. And, and who's going to read a thousand pages? Not many people. And the context really matters because innocent people can have their name destroyed uh, by sort of journal, you know, yellow journalist uh, bait click. Story. Can I mention something on that real quick? Yes. Uh, there's a the most egregious example of yes. this was a of a bunch of articles that came out saying Donald J. Trump, Trump right. named in Epstein reports. And then if you if you do a search, what does it say? It's well, did you ever see Donald Trump on the island? No, no, and that's right. It. Right. So it's a question that basically says Donald Trump wasn't there. But yeah, of course, they, they, yeah, whatever, there's an opportunity. That's what they did. Um, now, there are confirmations of, again, bad actors. Um, there are emails and back and forth about Bill Clinton. Now, nothing new. Uh, frankly, there's not really many surprises. We already heard these names from this case before. Bill Clinton apparently was a very close friend of Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, and visited his island, flew in his plane a lot. There's one document that says uh, Clinton likes his girls young, was the, mm -hmm. the quote that one of the victims said about the Clintons. There's information about uh, the Clintons uh, trying to pressure uh, Vanity Fair not to publish the story about Epstein being a trafficker and trying to bribe witnesses to change their story and bribe victims to change their story. So confirmatory stuff about Bill Clinton. Um, like I said, they, they sort of hyped this as there was going to be a tell-all. There's still names that are redacted. Two enormous political figures that are referred to are still blacked out, so we don't know who they are. Um, but they're obviously bigger than Bill Clinton because his name is is revealed. Um, and if it had been Donald Trump, it would have been all over. I'm sure oh, <laughs> they would have yeah. revealed that one. So I I will bet a hundred, you know, hundred percent is not Donald Trump's name that is still blacked mm -hmm. out. Uh, we did get some more information about lawyer Alan Dershowitz. Um, it's not really clear whether he's being besmirched or whether he is a shady guy. There's again, it it it's it's unclear. But at the end Can of the I day, one more thing yeah. on that, real quick. Yes. Yeah, with yeah. Dershowitz, he came on. I I watched him on yeah. uh, Hannity on Fox yeah. News, and the thing I did find disgusting about it is he was saying, "Well, anybody that accuses me is being anti-Semitic." Yeah. No, it's not anti-Semitic no. if you're in the document. People can right. you know can raise questions about it. People got to cut that out. It's he's in the document. Exactly. Now, again, I've looked at it. He may have done and he may be involved in this. Um, but again, it's a thousand pages and there's lots of reference. Right. You always have to look at statements in context. What are they asking about? It certainly is very uh, incriminating for Prince Andrew. I mean, this guy, mm. the fact that he's still yeah, getting royal benefits and being called the Prince of uh, Prince of um, Prince of York. Uh, Duke of York, excuse me, is really scandalous because it with beyond a doubt from these documents and other things, this guy was uh, a major client of this yeah. uh, nefarious ring here. And there's definitely some more 
documents that come out that confirm that in this batch. But all in all, after all the hype, I, there's not a lot there, which mm-hmm. my takeaway from is uh, I think they tried to throw Trump's name once or twice to do some Trump bait again. And that, that's that's uh, epically failing. Uh, notice today, actually, he closed his trial in New York, Trump, uh, and did a little little press conference again, uh, saying this is their version of 2020 election interference, uh, all these cases. I think there was maybe another attempt to do that. But more importantly, this is what I think they do when they're in hot, hot water. I think there's a lot of information coming out about January 6th. There's a lot of information coming out about the so-called... Uh, uh, things that you get in your arm for that uh, pandemic. Um, a lot of bad stuff is coming out. Bad economic news uh, is is really coming out, notwithstanding Biden claiming it's not. I think this is their classic technique of distraction. So that was my first reaction when I saw it. Okay, what are they trying to cover up? Because whenever there's something going on with Hunter Biden, there's something shiny over there that they want everyone to look at. So I, I actually think very little came out of this. I'm more interested in what may be out there that they're trying, they were trying to distract people from. Uh, there are a few suggestions, but there may be something else. And that, that's my take on this. Um, but I do think, you know, this shows us there is deep, moral corruption in the church and state. I mean, look at what our stories are coming together here. Deep, deep moral corruption. Uh, So goes the church, so goes the state, is a a common uh, understanding of history. Um, And I think that with this is the Epstein case is the parallel to the Fernandez case, to the Ted Ted McCarrick, etc. This is whenever there is doctrinal corruption, there's moral corruption that go hand in hand. Uh, we act as we believe. And I think that corruption is spread. And when the church is there blessing it, literally, the state is going to corrupt uh, even further because the church is meant to use their indirect power to keep civil leaders of civil society uh, on the straight and narrow. And for the last 60 years, she's basically gone into retirement on that role. And we're seeing in the Epstein story in this scandalous book, the bitter fruits of that abdication of her responsibility. Yeah. I I don't have much to add other than saying I, what one of my takeaways from this was that um, if we had any doubt that the uh, central agencies of our government, like the FBI and the CIA really aren't on our side, I think we should take a, uh, take a good look and realize that we have good evidence this is, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's obvious now that we have a sort of cabal of rich, influential, powerful people that are doing un, unbelievable things to our own citizens. And we see m- nothing but we see inaction or action to suppress the information on the part of things like the FBI and the CIA. And I, I think we should... Uh, this kind of ties into our next story. What do we expect is going to happen with this sort of widespread human trafficking when we have uh, hundreds of thousands of undocumented people coming over the border? And I think that leads us into our next story. Uh, absolutely right, because you're the, the biggest beneficiaries of an open border are these traffickers. This was the greatest right. thing that happened to their business when the border opened, because you don't have to do a lot to get to uh, get this over the border, which is why I think a lot of these politicians that support open border is because yeah. they're either participating in either in terms of the acts or in terms of the money. Uh, yeah, absolutely. 
And yeah, so th that does lead us to our next story. And I wanted to focus on two things because, you know, there's so much you can talk about with the immigration crisis. And to, uh, this has been talked about ad nauseum for the past 20 years. But really, it's, in, you know, every year we, we say it's the worst, it's the worst. But I, we can actually say we, it's, it really is a, a terrible situation that we are, are living in now. And I wanted to highlight two stories. The first is the, uh, a, a piece of legislation that was introduced in Texas called SB4. Um, this was a uh, a really a a, a try f on Texas's part to say we want to take back our borders. The the federal government is not doing anything in order to help us uh, stop this massive um, influx of illegal immigration that's coming over the border. So we're going to take things into our own hands. Uh, what did the federal government say? Well, they their action was, well, we're going to sue Texas over this. And I this the story first was suggested around December 28th, and I was thinking there's no way they're going to do this. I mean, that's such bad optics on their part. But in fact, they they are taking legislation. Uh, they're taking judicial action. Uh, this is the federal government, and they said, this is a quote: Texas cannot run its own immigration system. Its efforts through SB4 intrude on the federal government's exclusive authority to regulate the entry and removal of non-citizens. And Texas's uh, defense there is, well, there is nothing being done on the federal government's part. They're just letting all these people go over. So uh, so the governor is, is saying we, we have to take things into our own hands. Yeah, I actually um, loved the, the Babylon Bee's uh, <laughs> headline for their satire of uh, this story. Let me just pull it up. I thought it was great. Here it is. DOJ sues Texas saying it's against the law to pass a law <laughs> to enforce the law. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. That's actually what's going on because they're saying, look, you're, that is, is illegal to pass legal legislation to get illegal immigrants out of the country. It's so mind-boggling. Um <laughs> And I wanted to, before I get we get into the Catholic principles behind this and why this is really a distortion of uh, really everything, whether that be the social structure or even just from a moral standpoint, I wanted to point to another really unfortunate circumstance, which was um a in Arizona uh, where I just came back from. There was a rancher who he's experienced this for a long time. He's seventy five years old. His name's Al, uh, George Allen Kelly. He he had. Uh, constantly been seeing just really through all of his time there on the ranch, just these drug traffickers coming across the border and going onto his lands. And he, he felt a fear for his life. He, you know, saw these, um, these migrants uh, coming onto his property and he shot about a hundred yards away uh, with his, with his rifle and ended up, uh, and he ended up shooting a 48 year old, um, uh, a 48 year old man that was coming across the border. This man, this doesn't get reported, of course, had been deported by the government before uh, and was convicted because he's been, you know, entering the country illegally. And of course, uh, he is being prosecuted by the government for uh, for this action. I I don't really want to get into the weeds about the morality of, you know, should he have shot or or whatnot. But the fact is, is that he's threatened. His ranch is threatened. The state of Arizona is threatened. The state of Texas is threatened. What do we make of this? Well, if we look at this from a Catholic point of view, um, the Catholic Church's teaching on immigration before Pope Pius the uh, uh, the twelfth, or really even uh, John the twenty third, is very sparse, and that's because the Catholic Church has seen it as well. This is something that the the temporal, the political authority, really has a job to take care of uh, on its own. Um, 
but when we when we do look at the the principles behind this, we have to say, uh, first, firstly, public property is something that is um uh, is due to to everyone. And an example of this, really, to illustrate, is that even though private property is necessary due to preserving public order, preserving uh, justice, making sure society remains stable, if, for example, somebody owned a piece of bread and another person was starving. The person can that that bread is owed to the starving person. So those sorts of principles need to be when it comes to property need to be brought into the uh, the immigration discussion. So if we apply those same principles of well, private property is due due to preserving order. Yet you have this universal distri uh, distribution of goods. Private property is not absolute. Then we can say. Sure, there are circumstances where somebody can enter enter a country, and Pope Pius XII says, you know, there is a necessity for some people to be able to move to other uh, to other places, a sort of freedom of movement. But this has to be for a grave cause, and that means that they're escaping poverty uh, or extreme danger to their health. And even then, it has to be done in a lawful manner. They have to assimilate into the country. They can't disrupt the public order of the host country. So what we have well, it, now it's is interesting. Yeah, before go ahead. you go on with that, there there were several years ago when I found a law review article. It was written by a man named Ford. I don't know if he was a Catholic or not. Michigan Law Review that really was an insight for me on this. Mm -hmm. He said what really marks the transition from Christendom, the mid medieval mindset to the modern world was a transformation of thinking of nations as peoples and the modern world transforming that into geographic spaces. And, mm -hmm. and he points out that up until the modern era, for example, the king of, of France was not called the king of France. He was the king of the Franks. The mm -hmm. English king was the king of the English right? That a country wasn't a geographic place. It was a people. Now, that doesn't mean, that, again, I don't want to be able to distort this into bizarre totalitarian ethnic purity. It didn't mean there couldn't be other people. But as you, as Pius XII says, they come in and integrate in and become part of the people people of the French people. They integrate mm -hmm. because what makes a nation is you're a gens. You're a, a tribe. You're a people whether or not your border, yeah, wherever your borders are, but the modern concept is there's no such thing as that. There are no peoples. There's just these square, ni nicely drawn marks on a map, and they're just artificial borders and go over them. And it was an insight that really I hadn't appreciated that it, it, to me sums up the Catholic versus the modern misunderstanding of this issue. Yeah, and I think you're right when it comes to to viewing viewing people as a gens. That's extremely uh, important. Even the translation of gens has uh, has been changed in modern uh, writing. People understand that differently. And you're right. It's and when we apply these things to the the modern situation we're in, we see that the American people are being undermined by a sort of lawlessness that's coming across the border. People are losing their jobs. Uh, not to mention we have massive crime that's being uh, imported. And even when we, it should be a natural instinct for somebody where I, I've looked at the statistics of this and it really does end up working out this way that we have more illegal and legal immigrants coming into the country as, a, as an influx of people than we have people being born. 
that's going to completely change how the country looks, how it, uh, how it's acting. And I, these people aren't assimilating. So I don't want people to think that this means, uh, like you said, that this is some kind of, um, you know, nobody can get in, nobody can get get out, no freedom of movement. It's not that, but I, I think we need to say we are in a state of, uh, chaos right now order needs to be brought back into the country the borders really do need to be closed at least until we can get some kind of a uh, a grasp on the situation and uh until that happens we're going to keep seeing people uh a, a shift, negative shift in the economy, a negative shift in culture because there is going to be chaos, and even a negative shift um, in just coherence when it comes to our communities. So that's that's my take on it. And and look, here's my view: why the USCCB has gone Marxist on this? Why they're like they create? I mean, they talk about in these documents a natural right to immigrate, which is not, and they mm -hmm. misquote Pius the Twelfth. It's not what right. he says at all. But frankly, the only reason they care about this issue is it is masking the collapse of Vatican II, because it's the only thing keeping the numbers somewhat, they're still falling, but somewhat stable. But for filling pews with immigrants, the American parishes would be collapsing faster than they are. And the sad thing is they're bringing, they're having them come into the country because they still have some kind of a Catholic culture, many of them filling the pews, but then they, they to the extent they assimilate to the Novus Ordo Church here, they they sort of all fall away and they need more. So again, I am very cynical about this. I don't think they yeah. really care about. They are just filling pews uh, till they retire because it's yeah. it's an unsustainable strategy because they're losing them as quickly as they're becoming. But it's masking the decline of the numbers in parishes and dioceses, and I think yeah. that's the only reason they take the position they do. But you're right. If you think about it from a family perspective, because a nation is built on the family, um, you don't just leave your doors and windows open and let anybody walking down the street come into your house and eat in your take food out of your refrigerator. And that doesn't mean you don't have Christian charity, that if there's some mm -hmm. someone who needs help, that you don't invite them into your home when they need it. But there's a far cry from. I have nine or 10 kids and I can maybe let this person stay a few days with me to help them as opposed to never locking your windows and doors and just putting a sign out saying, Hey, anybody just crash in my house whenever you want. And having 50 people crash in your living room floor right. is not going to be the way to raise your children. Yeah. And not to mention many of these people aren't even coming from these Latin American uh, yeah. nations. They're actually coming from Africa, which many of these people are uh Muslims, many of these people, uh, we, we shouldn't just be saying, well, all of these people are good Catholics coming over the border. It's not the case. We, there's a lot of suspicious people coming over the border, people that should not be in this country, don't share our values, don't share our way of life. And uh, I, I think we should be more suspicious about um, who we're letting in the country. Uh, absolutely. Well, there you go. We covered a, a lot of ground, uh, again, about corruption, I think, in uh, church and state. But uh, we, we always want to approach these. Why? Because we want to be aware. We don't want to, you know, just put our head in the sand and right. say everything's great. But we don't want to let it um, give us discouragement. I remember we always want to moderate between presumption, everything's fine, God will take care of it, and despair, right? And uh, this wonderful season of epiphany when we have manifested that the war is won, the Savior is come, uh, the devil is defeated, and the gates of hell will never prevail. Now, they might be right up to the gates. The gates may shake and rattle, mm -hmm. but uh, they, they, uh, they, you know, the 
they will not prevail. And we just have to remember God put us here for a reason. So we need to be aware of what's going on so as not to be ensnared. Remember our Lord said the end times, uh, if they were not shortened, even the elect would be deceived. So our goal in informing is so that you are not, I'm not saying we are absolutely end times, but we're closer to the end times than we were yesterday. I can tell you that. Um, but we don't want to be deceived by these uh, purveyors of immorality and falsehood. And therefore, we need to be aware, but not discouraged by it. Remember, in the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. Um, that mm -hmm. we have Our Lady's word on that. And so we know. And by the way, that's one of the reasons I know we're not in the final end times, because Our Lady has told us there will be this period of peace given to the world uh, that is something not clearly in the end times as presented in Scripture. So we will have to go through that first before we reach uh, the next, you know, whatever the next phase will be. But we, all we need to do, and this is a great time to think about it, coming up on Saturday, uh, uh, go uh, to Mass. Remember, there are the five first Saturdays, but that doesn't mean it's funny. I always find it in the church. First Saturday, the place is full of the rafters. You go another Saturday, there's maybe nobody there. Uh, <laughs> go If you can go on a Saturday morning, go every Saturday, but make a commitment to the five first Saturdays. The uh, Fatima Center is running a kind of first, Friday, uh, first Saturday challenge uh, to go to honor Our Lady. Uh, it doesn't involve much. Receive communion, confession, as typical with with those kinds of things within eight days, uh, say a, a uh, five-decade rosary, meditate on the mysteries of the rosary for at least 15 minutes, and offer these things in reparation for the sins committed and the outrages against the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Mm -hmm. uh, Our Lady asked for it. And we can you know, say, complain a lot about what Fernandez and Francis are doing in Rome and these scandalous things. We can't change that directly. But we can do the first five Saturdays. We can say our daily rosary in our families. Uh, those are things are 100% within our control. And uh, so let's take up the Fatima Center Challenge for uh, the five first Saturdays and try to go beyond it. As I said, maybe say, you know, I can make it this Saturday too, or I can do, uh, you know, I can do more. And that's that's mm -hmm. what Our Lady asks of us. And one more thing on that, if I may add. Yes. Um, uh, we have to remember that God allows evil so that he can bring about some, uh, some greater good. If we think about why did he allow Luther? Well, he allowed it so that the Counter-Reformation could happen, so that the, yes. the Council of Trent happened, so people can have this the, the, the great gifts that we got from the Council of Trent. I think the same thing is happening today. Look at the great love that many traditionalists have for the traditional Latin Mass because of the persecution that, that, that it's had to face. So every time we see these errors, don't let it shake your faith, but rather double down on the truth. Make this yes. be an opportunity to study to study the faith more. We try to do that. We every time we mention a scandal, we try to give you the good, the complete Catholic perspective. Yes. Take these things as opportunities to grow. Don't let it just uh, don't dwell on these things and uh, and become discouraged beca uh, because of them. Yes. Absolutely. Well, there you have it. Happy uh, end to the octave of the Epiphany. And uh, we hope this weekend, the, birth, the baptism of our Lord, you can get to Mass for and, and pray uh, that our Lord's true divine nature is more seen and recognized by all countries of the world. Uh, and uh, we'll close as we do to pray for the church and state and pray particularly many, we put it up every week. We haven't mentioned it in a while. It was a prayer very dear to John Venari, uh, who was the head of Catholic family news for decades. Uh, it was a prayer revealed by our Lord himself to be particularly powerful against Marxists and other enemies of the church. Mm -hmm. All right. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Eternal Father, offer you the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the instruments of his holy passion, that thou may put division in the camp of thy enemies, for as thy beloved Son has said, a kingdom divided against itself shall fall. St. Hilaire de Poitiers. Pray for us. Our Lady of Fatima. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, there, thank you very much. Look out for new content all the time. We are posting a variety of special reports from time to time. So keep uh, subscribed to our channels, and you won't miss any uh, new content. And definitely check out that Doc White interview if you haven't done yet. Yeah. Thanks for watching.